stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. In Canada in 2017, there were just over 600 homicides. The entire country for the entire year. Imagine if that number were 4,000. What a crisis that would be. But you mean to tell me that on any given day in this country, 10, 11, 12 people are being murdered? We got to do something about that. So why are we so complacent when it comes to overdose deaths? Because there are some staggering numbers that we do have to confront. New numbers out today. In 2017, nearly 4,000 Canadians died from opioid overdoses. This comes from the federal government's Special Advisory Committee on Opioid Overdoses. It's a 34% increase from the year before. Uh, In the sort of bad news scenario that I think a lot of experts were forecasting. And the scary thing is that 2018 might even be worse above and beyond that. Most of these deaths were accidental. Vast majority involved fentanyl. 72%. So how do we get a handle on this? And what aren't we doing that we need to do to at least stop this trend? There are a lot of other issues we need to address, obviously addiction being one of them. First and foremost, it seems that we got to stop people from dying. So how do we reduce these number of fatal overdoses? Well, joining us to talk more about this uh, is someone who has seen the uh, impact of this firsthand. Uh, Lee Chapman's uh, brother died of a suspected fentanyl overdose back in 2015. She's a registered nurse, also a health services researcher uh, with the Wilson Center in Toronto, and has been very outspoken on the issue of uh, harm reduction. Uh, Lee, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You've been, and I think other activists have been warning for some time that this problem was going to get worse. Should, should we be surprised by the, the numbers we saw today? Um, I mean, I don't think we should be surprised. This was predicted, uh, you know, uh, to increase the, the death toll for 2017 was predicted to increase, and it did by 34%. I think we should be devastating, devastated by these numbers, and it yeah. should be top of mind for every Canadian. You know, we're losing people... Uh, primarily from the age 30 to 39 and those are people in their prime you know productive years so we're losing a generation and this is this is a devastating health crisis um, of epidemic proportions we compare it to SARS killed 44 Canadians H1N1 killed just over 400 Canadians we have 4,000 dead Canadians last year and all of the experts in the field say that the crisis has not yet peaked well, yeah, I mean, that works out to about 11 people every single day dying as a result of this. Never mind the other people who are impacted in other ways. Uh, it, it is a shocking number. How, how did we get to this point? Oh, I mean, we, you know, historically, we had a, an issue of physician over prescribing. I think that's largely, largely been corrected uh, by now. And really the, the issue that we have now is, um, you know, physician prescribing resulted in, a, you know, initiation of use. So people had dental surgery and got prescribed, you know, very generous amounts of opiates. And so they, they, were, on their, uh, they were on opiates and developed a tolerance and dependence. But I think the issue that we have now is really um, more on the supply side. We have a toxic supply. Uh, fentanyl is a deadly drug. Fentanyl and fentanyl analogs are, you know, uh, 72% of those those deaths are the result of overdose from fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. And it's 
a, a drug that doesn't really allow second chances. So if people are using alone, um, unsupervised, then, you know, there, it, it has a, a very, um, it doesn't discriminate and it, right. and it has a very deadly uh, outcome. It's very, very potent. It's a potent uh, opiate. It has absolutely saturated the market. There's almost no heroin to be found. It's mostly fentanyl. And fentanyl, from what I hear, is a better high. So people, you know, get high faster, but they can also overdose um, and, and ha- can have much more dire consequences. You know, and I think there are a lot of Canadians who feel as though they're, they're insulated from all of this, that it's simply a matter of, of choosing not to do drugs. Um, but why is that a simplistic way of looking at the problem? I mean, I don't think... Uh, people, people use drugs for all sorts of reasons, and they have used drugs since sort of the beginning of time. We may, you know, we all may use drugs. We may go, there may be legal drugs. We may go to the, uh, you know, the liquor store, and we may have our nightly glass of wine or a shot of whiskey or, and so on. Um, you know, people use mind-altering substances for a variety of reasons. And, and, you know, who are we to judge those reasons? I, you know, people are using drugs because of trauma, because of abuse, neglect, because they're homeless. And, you know, uh, we don't have solutions to those things. So, you know, we don't have... Our shelters are over capacity and they're 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 meager and inadequate at best. We don't have therapy and counseling available for people to access freely, um, and so people self medicate. And you know what? I don't blame them for doing so. I think that it's just up to us as a society to ensure that they don't die in doing so, and that we value them. We value their lives. And we love them and we want them to survive in this world. And, you know, for most of the people that I encounter, they are tremendously brave and resilient and strong people who are trying their hardest to survive in a world that really does little to ensure their survival. What more can we be doing? It seems as though, you know, aspects of of harm reduction are at least on the table. And and cities across the country, including here in Calgary, where I am, where we're experimenting with uh, supervised consumption sites. Do do we need more of this? I think we need supervised consumption sites in every health facility and, you know, across the country from family health teams, community health centers to hospitals. <laughs> you know, people are, are going into our publicly funded hospitals and are very rarely being able to use their drugs safely under supervision. They're having to leave against medical advice or they're getting into trouble um, with their health care providers. So I, I absolutely think we need more. But I think we also need to look at the drugs themselves and whether or not um, you know, I think we need to absolutely scale up access to a regulated supply of opiates across the country. That hasn't been done yet. It's still, you know, small pilot projects and local implementation um, that's been done on providing you know, access to hydromorphone, access to prescription heroin so that people can get on a regulated supply. They can get it, be interacting with healthcare providers on a regular basis, like several times a day to get their supply. And this it doesn't mean, you know, it's heroin for everyone. It wouldn't be for, if you know, for me, I'm not, I'm not an IV drug user, so I wouldn't be, you know, first in line for, <laughs> for this. But other people yeah. who are IV drug users would absolutely get access to a regulated supply. So they would be poisoned to death. What about the uh, question of decriminalization? Is, is that something that needs to be looked at and, and how could that make a difference? Yeah, I mean, the harm 
associated with the criminality and illegality of drugs means that people have to, they, they do all kinds of creative things to hustle and get their supply. They have to engage in sex trade work. They have to steal. Um, you know, there's, there's no job on the market that would pay enough uh, for somebody who's using, you know, illicit drugs on a regular basis. So it means they have to do all sorts of things to, to support themselves. And, and I think that, you know, that means it, it just creates the cycle. People have a criminal record and then they're more likely to get picked up and then they, they're incarcerated and then it increases, you know, there's very there are very few prisons with harm reduction programs. They're released. Their, incre- their risk of overdose is increased by, you know, upwards of 20% or more uh, because they're, they're, they haven't been using drugs or they've had a different access to drug, drugs in, uh, in jail. So I think it just creates this horrible cycle. Um, and, and I think if we, if we were to really realize that it is a, a crisis of drug policy that, you know, the, the harms are associated with the criminality and the illegality of the drugs. It's actually causing people more harm. Um, and and if we were to take those things away, then we could truly embrace a public health approach. Right. And, and that impro- approach, first and foremost, is, is about saving lives, as you say. I, I think in the longer run, we, we need to tackle the question of opioid addiction. And th- that's that's a very difficult challenge, isn't it? It is. I mean, there there isn't a lot of evidence that goes into treatment. There isn't. There are not a lot of treatment programs that follow a harm reduction approach. So that means that people who, you know, first of all, there's long waiting lists for treatment. They're extremely expensive. If people can get into treatment, they usually follow an, uh, you know, a 12-step abstinence-based program, which means, you know, abstinence from everything, from alcohol to marijuana to, you know, everything. And 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 sometimes, you know, in a harm reduction approach, approach cannabis may be a, a much safer alternative than fentanyl, than an uh-huh. opiate. Yeah. And and sometimes abstinence is actually a really unrealistic goal for somebody who's using opiates um, for a long, you know, on a long-term basis. So I think, you know, sure, treatment is is one of the pillars and it's something that we absolutely need to look at and, and invest more resources and evidence around effective community-based low barrier treatment options that are harm reduction focused. But ultimately we have to keep people alive to get to treatment. And that, that's the bottom line. Yeah. And we're doing some of that, but maybe not enough. Is it your fear that the, the numbers for 2018 may end up being worse than the, the numbers for 2017? Absolutely. I mean, if you, you know, this, this is a, pri- a problem of, of a crisis of drug policy, really. I, I mean, if we wanted to save those 4,000 lives last year, we could have. We have all of the evidence on what to do. Um, you know, this is this, this, this moralistic view that people are choosing to use drugs and, and you know, people, as I said, people use drugs for all sorts of reasons. And, uh, I think it is absolutely going to get worse in 2018. Um, I mean, it, it's it's devastating. People are are dying. It's it's um, you know these are our brothers, or sisters, or parents, or uncles. You know, it's, we're losing a, a, you know a, a num- so many people. And I, I think if if the everyday Canadian hasn't been affected by this, then just wait because their time's coming. You know, they're gonna ha- they're gonna have friends, they're gonna have family members who have been impacted by this because. I don't think anyone can escape this kind of a crisis. Indeed. Well, Lee, we'll leave it there. I really appreciate uh, you taking some time here to talk to us about all of this. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me.
Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.